Yeah, once again, I've been given the privilege, I've been asked to share God's word with you guys this morning, which is very, very exciting. I'm very excited about this word, but it's also a little bit scary. Not because of you guys, you're lovely, aren't you? Because this is God's word. We should always take it seriously, shouldn't we? Just earlier, at the, at the back, before we started the service, Jenny was explaining to Joe what, we, what they were doing this morning out there. And uh, they're going to be doing what we're doing this morning, as a little one-off. And um, it's all because Jenny was able to phone the preacher and ask what he was preaching on this morning. But then, then Amy goes, but we're going to have more fun. So, we'll compare notes later, shall we? I think so. Yeah, we'll have some fun this morning. But also, more importantly, as Julian just prayed, let not one of us leave this room, myself included, let not one of us leave this room unchallenged this morning. If we're worshipping the living God in, in music, in song, hearing from him and then hearing from his word, if not one of us leaves unchallenged this morning, then something's seriously wrong, isn't it? So let that be our prayer this morning. So, yes, once again, we're heading through our series on Ezra and Nehemiah. And just to uh, set the scene very briefly, just to remind you of where we're at, we've already heard that after many decades in exile, God's own people in exile, hundreds and hundreds of miles away in a foreign land with foreign customs, foreign religions, foreign gods as well, they've been held in exile, and finally 50 or 1,000 or more of them were able to return to Jerusalem under the governor Zerubbabel. But there's still a few of these guys left behind. The bulk of them have gone back to Jerusalem, managed to rebuild the temple and so on. But some decades later, there are still a few of these guys left behind in what is now Persia. It was the Babylonians who captured them initially, but then another empire, the Persians, came over. They took over. They defeated the Babylonians. And some of these exiles are still in this Persian empire. And one of these guys is Nehemiah. He's a Jew. He's one of God's people. But he's serving in the king's household in Persia. It's what we know now as Western Iran, um, not far from the border with Iraq. There's this place called Susa, which was where the, king's, the Persian king's winter residence was. And this is where Nehemiah served, a thousand miles away from his kind of hometown, if you like, of Jerusalem. He lived in luxury. He lived in a position of responsibility. He was the king's cupbearer, which is actually also a position of danger. Assassination attempts were rife in those days, and he tasted the king's wine. don't know if I'd want to. He's one of God's people... He was in a position where he served a foreign king who served other gods and he, he, he served that king honourably because God had, God had put him there. There's a big lesson for us in our workplace straight away, isn't there, I guess. He was quite a guy. But this Nehemiah, his brother Hananiah arrives all the way from Jerusalem and he gives him an eyewitness account of the state of Jerusalem. The walls are still rubble. There are no walls. They are still, around the whole city, there are still piles of rubble. The gates are still piles of ash from when they were burnt down when Jerusalem was initially attacked many, many, many years beforehand. Some attempts to rebuild these walls had been started, but they had been thwarted about 90 years before. And now, as a result, very few people actually lived in the city. So after this massive bulk of the exiles heading all the way over to Jerusalem to see the restoration of the city, yes, the temple worship has begun again, but little else has really happened. And it's still a bit of an abject state. And this news brought Nehemiah to his knees. He wept and he mourned for days. He prayed about it for months. He implored God to see the problem resolved and to be used to see that problem resolved as well. He was quite a guy. But one question this morning, what made Nehemiah feel any different to anybody else? Why did he feel he should be part of the answer? 
quite a thing to, to desire, isn't it? But what made him so special? What is it about this guy? Why did Nehemiah have such a heart to see the walls rebuilt around Jerusalem? Why did it crush him so much when he heard this news? There certainly wasn't some desire to see his forefather's hometown win the prettiest village award or to make it look nice and boost the tourism industry, get the economy going again. It wasn't about that. Of course it wasn't. It wasn't about beautifying the city, simply. It was part, that was, I'm sure that was part of it. He wants to see his hometown looking nice, doesn't he? But that wasn't what was at the core of his heart. It was about a genuine heart to see the identity of God's people protected and secured. As Don's already explained to us, the word and the worship were being re-established in the city. Worship is our lifestyle. It's not just about singing songs like we did this morning. Our worship is our lifestyle. Our worship should be 24-7. Worshipping a holy God. And that is our, that's where we find our identity in Christ, in how we live our lives to him and how we apply the word. As we read the word and apply it to our lives, that is then exemplified in our lifestyle. The word and the worship are our identity. And the walls protect this. And there is obviously a spiritual analogy to this that we'll be looking at this morning. The walls protect the worship and they protect the word. Although the temple had been rebuilt 70 years previously, Nehemiah wept for it still wasn't protected. We can't just establish worship, establish worship as much as you can, try and work out how best to do it, etc., and how to live our lives, and not be jealous for its integrity at the same time. It needs protecting at all times. There must be this jealousy. We'll take a closer look at that shortly. So if you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. Have the um, slide up, please, Alex. Cheers, buddy. Nehemiah chapter 4. And I'll put verses 1 to 11. I've no idea why, because it's verses 1 to 14. So ignore what's up there. Verses 1 to 14 of Nehemiah 4. Okay. First one. Now, when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they're building. If a fox goes up and it, it'll break down their stone wall. He wasn't so good at taunts, was Tobiah. I think you should have left it to Sambalat. It's like that. We did little henchmen in the pantomime. He's not quite as good as the main man, so Tobiah should have left him to it, to be honest, but love, him. love his art. <laughs> Nehemiah continues, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans. 
with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Yeah, Lord Jesus, just I ask for your help this morning. Lord, may we just truly learn what this true story from two and a half thousand years ago, what it means to our lives right now. Lord, your word is always relevant. And we just ask you just to open our eyes to what it is you want to say to us this morning. Help us, Lord. Well, we've been working through our purpose statement. Living life Jesus' way, by his spirit on his mission for his glory. We've been working through that all this year, and now we're working through Ezra and Nehemiah. And as a result, I trust that increasingly we now realise that there, needs, there is an absolute need for a jealousy amongst us for the integrity of who we are as his people. So what, I mean, what I mean by jealousy for integrity is not just a jealousy in the common definition of the word. Ooh, look what they got and all this sort of stuff. This is a real zeal, an absolute core-bound passion in our hearts to see God's people as a people of integrity, that we genuinely, in public and in private, when we're alone, we practice what we preach. That is integrity. Integrity as a whole, about being 100%, being who we say we are, being who we're called to be. There's this jealousy for our integrity, and that we need that more and more as each year passes, not just back then, but these days as well. These guys, both Ezra and Nehemiah, both exemplified this jealousy integrity in their hearts is just part of their character they couldn't help it thank god and they exemplified it in many different ways but for example when ezra found out about the jews intermarrying with the foreigners around them and as a result they'd been warned about it but as a result inevitably the consequences came and they were adopting foreign practices foreign religions as well when he found out about this intermarrying he tore his hair out and ripped his garments he was just so incensed not just in a prideful way See, I'm not like that. How could they ever do that? It was just, he was just so incensed by what God's people were doing. They were not a people of integrity at the time. And that's how he reacted. However, Nehemiah did similar. 13 years later, in only a short period of time, 13 years, these are short memories of these people, they were doing it again. <laughs> 13, 13 years, that's nothing in the state of things. They were doing it again. This time, after Ezra pulled his own hair out and ripped his garments, this time Nehemiah beat them up and pulled their hair out. He was a member of Fight Club. He was a dude. I wouldn't recommend that. But um, that is where this guy's heart was. This is where he was. He was so incensed, he beat them to a pulp. So these guys, Ezra and Nehemiah, pleasing God was far more important than pleasing men. It's a big lesson for us all. Quite often we can worry about what other people think of us and dilute how we live, can't we? This required jealousy also, however, needs to be long-term. It cannot be incidental. When certain occasions arise, we have a jealousy for integrity, we do something about it, and then plod along again. This needs to be long-term. This is only 13 years later, they're doing exactly the self-same thing. I must be honest with you guys, I do too have a genuine heart. I do have this heart, I must say, to see our identity as God's people being protected like this. It's not about me bigging myself up to be as wonderful as Nehemiah. I'm not. The bloke's a dude and I'm nothing like him. But I must admit, I get a fire in my belly. I just really feel the spirit just stirring within me. I can see heads nodding already. Stirring within me when I see cracks in our defences. Yeah? I know, I, know I'm, I know I'm not alone in this. 
We need to have this jealousy. It's God-given. I know it is. But we need to act on it. And we need to maintain it at all time. And not just cracks here at Beacon. I'm not just talking about Beacon. Yes, there are cracks here at times. And we need to do something about it. And we need to be zealous for it. But in the local church in general, and when I see cracks in my own walls as well, I'm talking personally as well, when I see cracks in my own walls, sometimes I'm just so ashamed and it's just I need to do something about it. Need to do something about it. We need this fierce yearning, don't we? I know I'm not alone. I've already seen heads nodding and in talking to you guys, I know I'm not the only one. But the key, however, is this, that not only do we need to be builders, we need to be fighters as well. Not picking fights, not looking for trouble. That's not what God's people are called to do. But we need to be willing to make a stand as we build. Hallelujah. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher from Century Before Last, I'll be joining the queue in heaven to have a chat with him. He's another dude. But when he had his monthly magazine going, based on this actual passage, he called his monthly magazine The Sword and the Trowel. Because he knew as God's people we need to have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Building and ready to defend what we're doing at all times for God's glory. So let's look back through this story. Let's put ourselves in the picture. And let's seek the lessons to be learnt, shall we? Just in the previous chapter, chapter 3, if you read through it, sometimes people skip it because it's just a list of names and bits of wall. But what it's doing is well worth reading through. In fact, if you haven't already, read all the way through Ezra and Nehemiah to get the overall picture. There's only 23 chapters altogether. Read it and get the big picture of what's going on. But in chapter 3, Nehemiah lists the names of all the people who built the wall, who contributed, or the names of the families who contributed to building the wall and explaining where they lived and therefore which section of the wall near where they lived was the bit they built and so on. He details it. Details it. Oh, these guys are heroes, not because there's anything special about them. They're not all Nehemiahs necessarily. These are regular folks who got on with the job and got on with rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They're regular folks who, in my mind, as a result, are heroes. And now the walls are being built at the beginning of chapter 4. The building actually commences. The construction work starts, not just for protection from physical threat, Note this, let me just make this point. These walls were not just for physical protection. That's the obvious state. There's guys surrounding them as a result in a minute. You get all these armies surrounding them as well. But it's also about protecting spiritual integrity. That was what was in mind at the time as well. In keeping the Sabbath holy, later on in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah shuts the gates to keep the Sabbath holy. There were, there were traders camping around the around outside the walls at the time, ready to come in. And he said, you are not coming in on the Sabbath. We are not having it. It's similar to Jesus driving the traders out of the temple when he came along. It's the same thing. These walls were there for spiritual integrity as well as physical. And we need to be able to, we need to have the ability to shut our gates at times. That's why we build our walls. There's no point shutting the gates and there's big holes in the wall either side. <laughs> What's the point in that? We need to have our walls in place in order to be able to shut the gates. By shutting the gates, I mean, as John mentioned last week, I believe, about having sound doctrine from the pulpit, which puts the onus on me and what I'm saying now, I guess, as well, doesn't it? But we need to make sure there is sound doctrine and sound doctrine only preached from here at the front, preached in cell, preached during the week amongst us as well. Our elders are here to guard the flock. They're here to look after us, not just in services, but outside as well. They need to know what's going on and know when they need to, when they need to act. This is a case of shutting our gates Shutting our gates is also personally shutting ourselves away for prayer, for quiet time. The busyness of life takes over. We need to be able to shut our gates for away, away for a while and spend time with God. Shutting gates is also understanding temptation. 
We need to know when and how we get tempted. I'll look at that in a little bit more shortly. But we need to know when and how we are more likely to get tempted so we can shut our gates and avoid being in that position in the first place. We need to have our walls in place so we can shut our gates. And the walls we build here at Beacon will be tested. They already have been, they already are, and they will be tested. If our, our walls aren't in place and maintained, we can't shut those gates in the first place. We've got some work to do, haven't we? But it's all very well, but what are our walls? It's always the tricky part, isn't it? Our walls aren't necessarily any one particular thing. Our walls are comprised of a number of things here at Beacon. And for example, the list is quite extensive, to be honest, but just for a few examples, some of the obvious ones is that it's our community, it's our cell life. As we work together in our cell groups, one of the main values of cell, the seven values of cell, is community. It's not just about meeting together and unpacking the word, which is a wonderful thing, but it's also about building community and doing it together. These are our walls. As we get closer and stronger together as, as God's people, as his family, we are building our walls. We are securing our identity. We're securing our community. And out of that, you build relationships. You build accountability. Iron sharpens iron, doesn't it? And as we spend more time together and as we gradually get to know each other more, we know when that person, they're not saying anything, but I know something's wrong. And I'm going to pray for them. And God willing, there'll be an opportunity for them to open up about how they're doing and what's going on, and we can work on this together. It's not about us being a bunch of individuals. It's also in service as well. Jesus said, love one another. By this, people will know you're my disciples. How we, how we relate to each other in that community and as we serve one another, as we minister to one another, is also part of our walls. Serving generally in church as well, not just ministering to each other, but welcome team and coffee and chaos, teas and coffees, kids work, etc. and so on. Alpha course, and there's so many. As we serve each other, people will know that we are his and it's also part of building our walls. It's about knitting us closer together, isn't it? If you're not serving, find ways to serve. Please do. Thank you to those that do. I know many, many of us here do serve in different ways, and thank you so much. It is greatly appreciated. But as I've already mentioned about our elders, our leaders are also part of our walls. They're there to protect us. And it's interesting, just note, if you look in verse 14, when it's all kick, really kicking off towards the end of our passage, Nehemiah says, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. If he just spoke to everyone, it would say, and I spoke to the people. This is listed specifically on purpose to say that he spoke to the leaders first because that is where our vision comes from, that's where our protection comes from. The vision drip feeds from the leaders down. This is why we're being increasingly deliberate about our, about our cells, about our cell leaders' meetings. We have cell leaders' meetings every two months where we spend time praying for you guys. We spend time dreaming dreams for you guys, looking into the future, seeking God's, seeking God's guidance to know where we're going with ourselves. It's all for your protection and for help keep feeding the vision of Beacon Church. We're deliberate about cell leaders' trainees. We gradually raise up more new leaders. You guys will be trained, will be resourced, will be supported every step of the way. We want to be deliberate about this because this is where the vision and the protection comes from. This is all part of our walls. And if you're not in a cell, come on, come on, join one, join one. <laughs> you can heckle me a little bit. You can, you're allowed to heckle me a little bit as long as I win. One other thing, how we submit our thought lives to him is also part of our personal walls, isn't it? What goes on in here is horrendous sometimes, isn't it? 
We need to be so careful. We need to build walls in our thought lives as well. And how we do that is part of those walls. Again, we'll look at that shortly. But if we are saved into a body, which we are, we're not saved into a mass of individuals, we are saved into a genuine body, saved into a family, then our sin and our spiritual condition will affect everybody else as well. Where you are, I know I said this last time when I preached, where we are spiritually affects everybody else as well. How we lead our home lives, our family life, our work life, our playtime, all these things need walls of integrity. It's about private as well as public. Routines, habits, attitudes, having the right heart in the first place will affect how we lead these things. These things are just examples of our walls and their maintenance that's needed to protect our worship and the word, the community and our identity. But if we are building our walls, if this is us back in verse 1, what happens straight away? Opposition. Didn't take long, did it? <laughs> did not take long at all. First, let's just look at verse 1 through to 3. Let's read, let's read these different types of opposition, shall we? Verse 1. Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He's just taking the mickey, isn't he? And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And here comes little Tobiah. Yeah, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. These are taunts. They're getting taunts. Then, verses 7, 8 and 11. Opposition changes. It goes up a gear. Here we go. But when Sambalat and Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Astrodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, despite their taunts, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. They're coming to fight. Then verse 11, here we go. And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. They weren't just determined to stop them building the walls. They were determined to kill them. Jerusalem, what, what, I mean, why was, was this a pride thing? Why were they that bothered about this little city rebuilding their walls? Jerusalem itself was an actual threat. It was slap bang in the middle of the big east to west trade route from Persia to Egypt and back again. And as that city got more and more established, they'd be sniping a lot of that e- economy that was go- be going along that trade route and all these guys were missing out. That's what they were worried about. And that's why Jerusalem was a threat. And in similar ways, the church is a threat to the world. The church is a threat in the spiritual realm, possibly sometimes physically as well. It, we are a threat to how people live their lives, to the gods that they serve, and to the devil, of course. We are a threat. We need to remember that. We need to be vigilant. We will face opposition as we build our walls. It's inevitable, it's biblical, and we need to be aware of it. It's unavoidable. Hence, as well as maintenance, the key is about vigilance as well, my second point. We need to remain constantly vigilant for our families, for our marriages, our church life, our personal integrity, how we work in our workplace and so on. Opposition comes from all areas. It comes from inside the church, unfortunately. We'll look at that in a sec. And it comes from outside the church, which is the obvious one. The gospel is offensive. To those of us who are saved, to those of us who are being wooed by the Spirit, those that aren't saved yet, the gospel is sweet music, isn't it? Absolute sweet. It's just this release. Thank God. But to others, it is completely... It's just distasteful. What do you mean? 
What do you mean I'm dirty? What, what do you mean I'm a sinner? What do you mean I'm not going to heaven to see my granddad? Or Princess Dinah and Dodie or whatever people believe in. They, they do. They're, oh, they're happy together now. No, the reality is, by nature, we are totally depraved, which means every aspect of our person is affected by and corrupted by sin. And people are offended by that thought because they big themselves up in their head. One of my mates, he's an atheist and he's an evangelical atheist. <laughs> and you say that kind of thing to him and he is hugely offended. Huge, in a massive, massive way. You should see him on the stuff he puts on Facebook and on Twitter. He's preaching the gospel of atheism. So I'll preach it back. <laughs> I'll preach it my way, God's way, back to, back to him. But people are hugely offended by the gospel. Outside the church come attacks, as these guys outside Jerusalem come attacks. The Jews were literally surrounded, north, east, south and west. To the north they had Sambalat and his guys, to the east they had Tobiah and his guys, to the south they had the Arabs, to the west they had the Ashdodites. Completely they were surrounded. We are surrounded too. Wherever we go in this culture, in this day and age, we are surrounded. We can have, just looking at taunts, thank God actually, we need to be grateful. In this country, we get more of the taunts than the death, the death threats, don't we? But we still get opposition. We get taunts. We get accusations of being fundamentalists or of being dogmatic. People like to think that you can have any belief as long as you believe it. And when they hear us saying, that's not actually the case. I mean, God love you, but I'm right and you're wrong. How do you put that? People don't like it. They call us dogmatic, which in some ways we are. But people accuse us and taunt us as such. They jeer at us as such. They laugh at us when we talk about creation versus evolution. Evolution's quite obvious, isn't it? It's proven by science. No, it's not. No. I'll go into that another time. <laughs> there, we haven't got time for that this morning. But people laugh at us because we're not evolutionists and they think it's hilarious. Abortion. It's my body. Baby can't feel pain. Pro-life. What's wrong with that? You Christians think you know it all? say no more but sexuality is another one I want to live my life my way I want to have my cake and eat it and sleep with who I will male, female or in between that's how people feel isn't it that's, it's horrible and that's how people feel and they just don't get where we're coming from and they laugh at us because we won't, expect, we, won't, we won't accept it we can accept them as people but we cannot accept that kind of lifestyle well, certainly amongst the church we need to be very careful about where we stand and they, they accuse us of being dogmatic as a result these are the kind of taunts and jeers that we get around us. Thank God we don't get death threats in this country, but I won't say it won't happen. We just need to be sure, don't we? However, also, we do get, we do get threats and, and, and jeering from inside the church as well. Let's look at verse 10 and verse 12. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. In verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. There's cynicism and unbelief straight away amongst God's own people. Amongst God's own people. Don't be one of those people. If you have concerns, us leaders, we don't always get it right, do we? If you have concerns, talk to us. But don't be a person... Of cynicism or unbelief, please. That's, t that's, that's totally different. Apathy is another thing. You know, come and return to us. Come and hide. Don't worry about it. Don't stick your head above the parapet. Don't build those walls. It'll be all right. These people will go away if we stop doing it. If you don't want opposition, then don't do anything. That's up to you. But if you really want to 
be working for God, be building the kingdom for him, with him, by him, then we need to stick our heads above the parapets and we need to expect there will be opposition. These guys here, these are people who didn't grasp the vision or trust God or trust their leaders. And we need to do all of that, don't we? Our elders are here to look for ungodly agendas as well. We need to be sure that any people who come into the church here don't have an agenda other than what God has planned for us as his people. We have to be very careful. Tobiah himself, this very same Tobiah, 13 years later, had ensconced himself in a room in the temple with his own stuff. He was related by marriage to the high priest. What's going on there? Straight in, the spiritual hub of God's people. He's in there, 13 years later. We have to be so careful. We have to be vigilant for these things. So what was their first response? What was Nehemiah and the people's first response? Well, to the jaunts, to the jaunts, to the taunts, <laughs> jaunts, the jeering and taunts. I've, I've created a new word for the Oxford English Dictionary. Verse 4, to the jeering and the taunts, Nehemiah says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt and their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Strong language. Bless him. But straight away, what does he do? He prays. He prays. And in verse 9, when the, the threats go up a gear, he says, and we pray to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. First response was pray. The first rule of Fight Club is pray. What's the first rule of Fight Club? Pray. pray. Remember that. Never forget it. To the taunting, prayer was sufficient. You don't need to step up and throw back words about how clever the gospel is, and, and try and explain yourself necessarily, just pray and get on with it. Let them make themselves look stupid, like little Tobiah. But when it comes to serious threats, then of course we need to act. Of course we do. We need to do practical things, but we must never forget that we need to pray first. The first rule of Fight Club is pray. Pray first. And there's no coincidence that John spoke on Nehemiah chapter 1 and prayer last week. Right at the beginning of the book, prayer, 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 straight away. It's the first response. God is 100% committed to his people. Remember the Abrahamic promise that Jim Ranson told us about? Through that, I will establish a people through you that will bless all the world. Through that, Messiah will come. That was God's plan, and he never fails in seeing his plans come to fruition, does he? He had chosen Israel as the channel for his son to arrive at. And through incidents such as this, he made sure that happened in the right time and in the right place. There is a jealousy for integrity on God's behalf to ensure that his promises are fulfilled. And again, like here, about his son Messiah arriving through the right bloodline, including Zerubbabel, the guy who turned up with the big bulk of exiles to start with. You look through Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy, there's Zerubbabel, right in the middle of it, the same guy. Haggai, the prophet at the time, God spoke through him and says, Zechariah, you're going to be my signet ring. I'm proud of you and I've chosen you. And there he is, in the middle of the genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, he's Jesus' great, 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 however many greats, granddaddy. There he is. God will see his promises fulfilled the thing about prayer is that it changes our changes our perspective more than anything more than circumstances they didn't pray and these enemies went away they prayed and then got on with the work and God saw it fulfilled prayer gives us confidence to realise who is on our side what was the biggest message of the worship time this morning that the Lord reigns He's on our side. He's in charge of everything. That's what this is all about. That's what prayer does for us. Amy's had a bit of a blip at school over the past couple of weeks. Some of you might know about this. I don't need to worry about details. But 
love her heart. She's really struggled with going to school in the morning for various reasons. And the biggest thing Jenny and I have had to try and get across to her through praying with her, through talking to her, is just to help her understand that there are those who are bigger and stronger fighting for her and dealing with the situation. That is where she'll get her confidence. Her confidence will not come from, right, when you're there, at that moment, when this happens, you've got to do this and you've got to do it. Just to know, mummy and daddy are sorting it out. Your teachers are sorting it out. We are on this for you. And that's what prayer does. Take, for example, Isaiah 43.10. These tiny little, there's two little nuggets of truth you can take. Isaiah 43.10, at the end of the verse, says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. It's a little atom of truth. No God was formed before me, nor shall there be any after me. And then you combine that with Psalm 119, verse 68, You are good and do good. You are good and do good. Two tiny little atoms of truth. If you're not very good at memorising scripture, you can memorise those two sentences, can't you? Those two atoms, bang them together, you've got a huge great nuclear explosion of truth, haven't you? You've got this God, who there was no God formed before him, nor any after him. He is the God, the only true universal God, King of kings, and he is good and he does good, from everlasting to everlasting. This is our King, hallelujah. This is what we were singing this morning. Right, now get back to your prayer list. I'll bet you can scratch half those little bits off your list right away, can't you? We need to pray with that in mind. We need to remember who we come before. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. Look at verse 14 into 15. How does he pray? He says, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Now fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. That's the key. It changes the perspective, doesn't it? This is about arrow prayers as well. This isn't just about lengthy prayers and getting on our knees for hours at a time. Sometimes there is a time and a place for that. We need to be doing that. Nehemiah prayed for months before he even left Susa to come to Jerusalem. But it's also about a lifestyle. Spurgeon, the preacher I mentioned just now, he always talked about he never prayed for more than a few minutes at a time. But he never went for more than a few minutes without praying. It's his lifestyle. The more we talk with God, the more we walk with God. Talking is walking. And that's what it's about. I call them text prayers. They're arrow prayers. We're 21st century now, aren't we? Dear God, help send. <laughs> Just why, as you're walking, dear God, help me with this exam. Help me with this interview that's coming up. Everything. Keep talking to him all the time. It's not just shutting yourself away. And there is definitely a time and place for doing that. And we need to. But in between all those lengthy prayers, we still need to be talking with him. Talking is walking. What's the first rule of Fight Club? Prayer. 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 Hallelujah. Then comes the action. Then, after praying, they set the guard. Verse 13, where the weaknesses were, Nehemiah stationed people to guard them day and night. There's that sword in the trail that Spurgeon spoke of again. They were ready to fight while they built. We do need to be aware that while there are still weak spots in our defences, it's not just stationing a guard there. It's about rebuilding those breaches as well, isn't it? We have a responsibility to deal with those breaches, not just leave them open and hope a sword, will, a sword will do enough when the enemy comes. The best bet is to actually shore up those breaches in the first place, isn't it? 1 Peter 5 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. As we grow, as we repair our cracks, as we close our breaches, God willing, opposition and attack is inevitable. We've seen it already. We need to be prepared, but we do also need to repair them. In order to repair them, repair these breaches, we need to know where they are, don't we? We need to be honest with ourselves. In terms of personal application, 
Resisting temptation can be helped by general tips, general principles that we can put into place. We need to look for patterns of where we are most likely to be tempted and then learn how to avoid those positions, those situations. Is it a certain time of day, certain time of the week? Are you with certain people? Are you alone? Is it when you're not with certain people? Where are you at the time? How do you feel beforehand? How does it make you feel? Look for these patterns. Is it when you get frustrated? Is it when you get angry? Is it when you're tired? When you've had a bit to drink, you shouldn't have had too much to drink in the first place because that, that drops your defences. You've got to be so careful. We've got to be vigilant, haven't we? You've got to be very careful. Rick Warren says, I love this, it's brilliant. Rick Warren says, sin always has a temporary payoff. You wouldn't do it if it didn't. If sin had the pain of a root canal, it wouldn't be a problem. If it hurt, we wouldn't go anywhere near it. It's true. There is pleasure in sin. The Bible says it's fun. But the pleasure is short-term. When you sin, you're trading short-term pleasure for long-term damage and destruction. It's not a good deal. Fix your breaches. Resist temptation. Know where you get tempted and do something about it to avoid that. Don't just wait for it to come along and then do something about it there and then. Avoid being in that position in the first place and do it for him. Corporately, we can have breaches as well, of course, can't we? Disunity is a breach in our defences, and I know we're going to be hearing more about that over the next few sermons to come. Disunity, obviously, by nature of the word, it breaks up our community, and community is part of our walls. Cynicism and unbelief, as we've already seen. That's a corporate breach in the church, isn't it? We all need to be singing from the same songbook. We all need to be working together, serving together, side by side, with sword and trowel in hand. Gossip breaks down our defences, doesn't it? It starts breaking up that unity amongst us. Don't do it. Pride is a similar thing, and apathy as well. Yes, there are times when we are genuinely physically tired and we need to take some Sabbath time out. Sometimes we can let that just become apathy. And I can't be bothered to go to the prayer meeting tonight or watch EastEnders or whatever's on these days. I don't know. Do. But some people, you know, I, I, know, I know sometimes it's just like, that's another meeting. and oh, I can't be bothered. But no, we need to be working. We need to be striving in his strength to keep moving on. These are all examples of breaches. We need to know our breaches personally and corporately. We need to do something about it. As we finish, time's moving on, but as we finish, let's look at persistence. It's very easy to run for a period and then run out of steam, isn't it? Remember, it's only 13 years before they were intermarrying foreign people again and they had Tobias sitting in the temple doing his own thing already. He and Sambalat both ended up related by marriage to the high priest. Should not happen. Should not happen, should it? You can't just build a car, fill it with fuel, and let it go. Fill it up with fuel now and again, and that's it. Cars need servicing. They need oil changes. They need regular tyre tread checks and replacing the tyres when you need to be. There is a maintenance that is long-term, as well as just building it in the first place. We need to remember that we're in this for the long haul. Therefore, we need to be very aware of apathy and tiredness, like I just mentioned, as well as overt attacks as well. When we're tired, our defences are down. We need to be vigilant at all times, not just at certain moments. The people of Judah, they began to think the job was too much themselves. The builder's strength is failing, there's too much rubble, we can't do it by ourselves. But they were losing sight of what resources they had, and they were losing sight, more importantly, of who was on their side. It wasn't just about Nehemiah or Ezra. This is about the God that Ezra and Nehemiah served. He was on their side. When you, when you lose sight 
of who is on our side in the first place, like with Amy, helping her understand and get her confidence from knowing who is fighting for her. When we lose sight of who, read the book of Revelation. <laughs> Have a look at what happens at the end. Guess who wins? Have a look at Revelation 19. There is our King Jesus riding on a white horse, eyes of fire, a crown on his head. He's got a sword in one hand and a rod of iron in the other, one to judge and one to rule. He's got a tattoo on his leg that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our Jesus. He wins. Don't forget that. He already has, to be honest, 2,000 years ago. Don't forget that. All it took was a man of vision like Nehemiah to show them that not only was there a preferable future, but also that they could do it. And then as you read through the rest of chapter 4, you see the details of what happened when they were stationing themselves there and getting ready to defend the walls as they built them. Despite this overt opposition, despite these death threats, and with a reduced workforce, they did it in shifts. Some stood there holding the spears and the armour while others got the uh, cement and bricks together. And the builders, were work- the builders themselves who were working, they were doing it with massive great swords on their sides as well at all times. And yet despite that, they did it in less than two months. That's all it took. This is a whole city's walls. This is four and a half miles approximately of wall. And between them, they got the job done. And all it took was Nehemiah to say, remember the Lord, great and awesome. Now let's get on with it. Don't worry about these guys around that here. He's bigger than them. Let's get on and do it. The restoring of the walls here at Beacon have been thwarted before, let's be honest. Don't need to worry about details, but we've had a bumpy ride over the years. Just like in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, in the book of Ezra, they tried to rebuild the walls and it was thwarted and they gave up for 90 years and then Nehemiah came along. But just like in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, by, through seeing God's dream for the church here in Herne Bay, not just Beacon, but the church in general here in Herne Bay, that's God's dream that his name will be glorified in this town. I know it. I'm sure of it. And we have a part to play in that. He will fulfil his promises. If we set our hearts on unfolding his purposes in the long term, with vigilance and persistence, we, like Ezra and Nehemiah, will no longer see the church in Home Bay running with a limp, but making great strides for the kingdom. Is that not our heart? Is that not what we want as well? I know it is. I know it is. But we need to keep remembering who is on our side for his glory. It's not simply about us here at Beacon beautifying the city. As we tweak things here and there, as we, as we work with our cell groups, whatever, as we build our walls, it's not about beautifying the city, making things look really smooth and professional and organised. Is, there is a part of that to play in this. If we're going to do things for God, we're going to do them well, aren't we? But it's more than that. It's more than that. It's about seeing God's people no longer running with a limp but making great strides for his kingdom with his help having a heart of jealousy for the integrity of his people, this real zeal to practice what we preach in all things. It's not arrogance. We know better than you. It's not a lack of humility. Simply reflecting our own God's heart. It's representing the Father's likeness. Zechariah, the prophet who ministered during the temple's uh, completion in Ezra, says in chapter 1, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. That jealousy is on God's heart as well. He has a jealousy for our integrity. And all we're doing, if and when we have that, is reflecting his heart. It's the Father's likeness. If we don't have that heart, if at any point you feel you don't have that heart, then maybe there's some serious talking with God to do. But I trust that all of us, if not now but over time, will learn 
that jealousy for integrity of his people, of each of us, in our personal lives as well. And as we reflect our God's heart, may it be reflected in how we build the walls here at Beacon and in Herne Bay, with sword and with trowel in hand. Yeah? What's the first rule of Fight Club? Let's pray. Jesus, we, we just want to remember what it's all about. Lord, we don't want to see Beacon grow stronger and grow in numbers and make an impact in this community for your glory. We don't want to, we just, we don't want to do that and get all the credit. Lord, it's all about you. It's genuinely for your glory. Lord Jesus, we want to see your name shining like, uh, genuinely like a beacon over this town. And we want to be, Lord, we just ask humbly, we want to be a part of that. We don't want to miss out. Lord Jesus. But Lord, we also know that we need just humbly just to accept that there's going to be attack, there's going to be opposition. We're not going to go looking for it. But we know it will come. But Lord, we just ask for your help to keep our eyes peeled at all times, to keep watching on the horizon so that we know that when it comes, we're prepared for it. Lord, help us all just to keep gelling together as your people, to get stuck in, to share our lives with each other, to serve each other and to serve the, the guests, the people you bring into us. On the Alpha Course, at Coffee and Chaos on Sunday mornings, these people are a treasure that you've given us and we want to treat them as such. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, as we build the walls here at Beacon, just remind us who we're doing it for, who we're doing it with. The Lord, great and awesome. It's all about you, Lord Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we give it all back to you. It's all for you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Cheers, guys. you got any questions? you want any prayer? Come find one of us. Feel free to. Sell questions will go out sometime later on today. I'll email some sell questions out and some notes and stuff. Teas and coffees.